You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. There's four or five different ways to get to 1.5 degrees, four or five different ways to get to net zero. How does public opinion get influenced by companies who essentially are seeking to make money pursuing a particular energy outcome? For July 26th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Among researchers and media, there seems to be an unspoken rule that it's good form to emphasize the worst-case scenarios of climate change and the slow speed of the energy transition, but it's irresponsible to point out that the energy transition is accelerating, reducing the expected increases in carbon emissions, and making the worst-case warming scenarios increasingly unlikely. Why is that? Where does this bias toward bad news and against good news come from? And why is that bias unspoken, as if it's inherent to covering the topic? Do researchers and media creators fear that they won't be taken seriously, or that they'll be criticized if they highlight progress? Do they think it's better to err on the side of pessimism than optimism? Does the sheer uncertainty about the future of energy and climate lead them to assume that things will turn out for the worse? Or is it just a matter of winning in the attention economy, where bad news seems to have more currency than good news? Or are we all just trapped in a doom spiral, endlessly doom-scrolling on the internet as we're sucked down by the sheer gravity of negative coverage? These are not trivial questions. Those who convey information to the public have an incredibly important role to play in the energy transition because they set the expectations and the hopes of the public. And the public's perspective informs politics, which influences policy. In a very real way, media coverage of the energy transition can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, either to the good or the bad. Because if you tell people we're doomed, they'll fall into nihilism and lassitude, throw up their hands, and do nothing about the problem. But if you tell them that they can be a part of the solution and help prevent climate doom, they will do what they can and support leaders who are focused on solving the problem. Nor are these simple black and white questions. It's essential that we understand what's real and likely and what isn't. After more than seven years of creating this show, I'm well aware of the subtle emotional dynamics at play in this domain and among our listeners. I'm also aware that we're generally more likely to get feedback from those who disagree with the perspectives they hear on this show than from those who agree. But that doesn't mean that we should feature more perspectives that we disagree with. That would be false equivalence. At all times, we have to simply strive to understand the truth and get the story right, no matter who likes it or doesn't. For just one example of what I'm talking about here, some listeners have objected to our many discussions about why the worst-case warming scenario indicated by RCP 8.5 in the IPCC framework is unlikely. They don't object because they have any substantive disagreement with what our scientists' guests have to say about it, but because they worry about the uncertainty in the projections we discuss and the potential for unknown feedback loops that might accelerate warming in the future. To them, that worry alone is reason enough to continue to emphasize the possibility of a future in which we have 6 degrees of warming and 10 feet of sea level rise. Bluntly put, we disagree. If there is a 0.1% chance of climate doom, and a 99.9% .9 chance of a successful transition, then we think it's more important to talk about the 99.9% .9 chance, especially at a time when, for whatever reasons, it's still vogue to emphasize the 0.1% chance in various journals and mainstream media. A shred of uncertainty is not sufficient justification to focus on the worst case. 
And frankly, at this point, it's really just plain lazy to do so. It's harder to tell a hopeful story about being 15% of the way down a long and arduous road than it is to dismiss that progress as still being too modest. But if you're on that road, and continuing down it at accelerating speed, then that's exactly the story that we should be telling. In this ever-so-pessimistic landscape, it's easy to spot the very few who emphasize the actual progress we're making on the energy transition because they stick out like sore thumbs, and one of them is our guest today. Hannah Ritchie is a senior researcher in the Program for Global Development at the University of Oxford. She's also a deputy editor and lead researcher at the online publication Our World in Data, which brings together the latest data and research on the world's largest problems and makes it accessible for a general audience. Her research appears regularly in major publications globally, and her forthcoming book, Not the End of the World, will be published in January 2024. In today's conversation, Hannah explores what converted her from a climate pessimist to an optimist and shares her insights into why stories of climate doom seem to be more popular. We explore a number of her data analyses that support her optimistic outlook, and we discuss why it's important to give people hope that we can address the climate challenge successfully, not by merely adopting a Pollyannish attitude, but by really looking at the facts and understanding the progress that we're actually making. She's a very talented data analyst who can also write lucidly and persuasively about data, and I'm a huge fan of her work. Then in the news segment, we'll check out the latest outlook for clean energy investment from the IEA. We'll see how China's deployment of solar is accelerating. We'll recognize some major insurance companies that are backpedaling on their climate initiatives. We'll note the withdrawal of major insurers from climate risk in several states, and especially California. And we'll update the outlook for global oil demand now that EVs are taking real market share. And now our conversation with Hannah Ritchie, recorded June 12, 2023. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Hannah, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much for having me. You've built a career around compiling and explaining data on sustainability, on tackling everything from energy to agriculture to emissions to climate science and the environment. And you've also published many articles sharing your data insights, most notably at Our World in Data, but also on your personal substack, Sustainability by Numbers, and in many other top-tier publications such as the Washington Post and Wired. So I think it's fair to say that you've got a better idea than most about exactly where humanity stands in terms of its sustainability on a broad range of topics. And we're going to restrict the conversation today just to energy because that's what our show is about. But I just wanted to establish your bona fides in these related domains because I think it's important for our listeners to understand your worldview. And the main topic I wanted to discuss with you today is one that you've tackled in a number of articles over the past several years, and that's about why you believe there's an optimistic case for our efforts to halt global warming. For example, in a piece published last September titled An End to Doomerism, you explained why you were coming out as an impatient optimist. So why don't we start there? What compelled you to shift, as you explained in that piece, from thinking that cynicism was a founding principle of science to being a climate optimist? Yes, I think for a long time, I definitely identified as a pessimist or a cynicist. I think part of that, so I did environmental degrees at university. And I guess the period that I was doing that was like between 2010 and 2016. So I guess that was just after Copenhagen and like around the time in the build up to Paris. And I think part of that like breeds into the pessimism. At the time, there was very little that seemed to be going right and very little to be optimistic about. Like we were going well past our targets 
decarbonisation seemed extremely expensive. It was impossible to get countries to really agree on like a solid agreement. Rich countries weren't doing enough. It seemed impossible that low and middle income countries could possibly develop without going through this really carbon intensive pathways. So I think after like five or six years of studying this and then also looking in the political realm and seeing there's very little here to be optimistic about, I ended up just being extremely pessimistic. But I think also paired with that, so I was very pessimistic on the environmental side. But I think part of the problem is that also on the human side, so in terms of looking at like human metrics of progress, there my worldview was way off. My pessimism about the environment also bled into like human dimensions. So I thought like hunger was at an all-time high, like deaths from natural disasters were at an all-time high, poverty was at an all-time high. And the point is that all of those things were wrong. Like it's actually the opposite. All of these trends have, for the most part, been getting much, much better. Mm. So I ended up with this pairing of like environment and human progress are both getting worse at the same time. And I think part of my thinking there like bled into the scientific thinking of like to be skeptical was to be a realistic and optimists just weren't grounded in reality. Yeah, I remember those days and I remember feeling some of those things myself, you know, especially circa 2015 or so. So why do you think so many people are pessimistic about the energy transition and about our prospects for halting global warming? So I think there's a couple of things here. I think, first of all, I think pessimism often just sounds smarter. So if you take the example of, let's say, electric vehicles, and I say, like, look how quickly electric vehicles are taking off. Isn't this great? And someone comes in with, yeah, but once you factor in the life cycle emissions of the production and the carbon intensity of electricity mix, then it's actually not much better than a petrol car. Or they start rhyming off random numbers about lithium resources and the fact that we won't have enough. Often they sound very smart and that's because they are like trying to tease apart and pull apart the issue. Now, both of those points are wrong. Like you've had Zeke Hausfaller on the podcast previously talking about the mineral requirements of the energy transition. Right. And like the point there is that we probably will have enough and the carbon points is wrong. But the point is that they will often sound very smart and they sound trustworthy because they're pulling the idea apart and they sound much smarter than the optimist. It's like, hey, isn't this great? Then this is amazing. So that's like one example where people often mistake cynicism for intelligence and they put a lot of trust in those people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So was it just finally diving in and really studying the data at Our World in Data that started to turn your mind around on those things? Yeah, I think one point was becoming familiar with the data, one seeing the human progress. Mm. But I think then, like after studying the data for six or seven years now, I've also seen how quickly now the data on many of these metrics, whether it's the takeoff of renewables or the takeoff of electric vehicles or prices, like there's been a massive, massive change in a very, very short period of time. I mean, I think this is part of the problem with this like optimism, pessimism. I think a lot of people are still stuck in the mindset of where we were 10 years ago, for example. So their worldview in that dimension is like way off. If you're still looking at many of these metrics from even five years in the past, your understanding of how quickly these things can move is way off and would rightly be more pessimistic than they should be today. Well, I was going to mention that you cited a study in your essay showing that those who know the most about global progress tend to be more optimistic about the future. Yeah, so like part of this work came from Hans Roslin. I don't know if everyone will be yeah. familiar with him. 
he did a lot of what I'm discussing on environmental metrics. He did it on the human progress metrics. So like poverty, child mortality, health. In the past, I would have got all of the questions that he would have posed wrong. <laughs> but his key point there is that a lot of people's worldview was like decades or even like 50 years out of date, which made them way more pessimistic than they should have been. But when you tie that data, if you survey people on these kind of basic questions about how the world's changing and the state of the world, generally the people that get most of those answers correct also answer higher on the question of, do you think that the world will get better over time or do you think the future will be better than it is today? So generally what you find is that the more people know about progress and how things are changing, the more optimistic they are about the future. And that makes sense. If you don't believe things can change, then you probably expect that the future might not be better than it is today. Right. And if you're just a very passive consumer of news, you'll probably mostly get exposed to negative stories, ones that emphasize the doom aspects more than the progress aspects. Yeah, like most of what's reported in the news is single events. And often those single events are negative. So it's a plane crash or a natural disaster or a stabbing in your town. What doesn't really appear in the news is renewable energy increased by X amount of terawatt hours today. Right. But if that's happening like day after day after day, like the change there is absolutely massive. But because it's happening every day, it's not news. Right. In fact, I would say it's only been in the last couple of years that I've even seen most media outlets willing to report a number in terawatts or megawatt mm. hours or anything of the kind. Up until then, it always had to be 1.5 million homes worth or something. Right. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> There's a fundamental literacy issue there, too, that was sort of, I think, inhibiting the reporting of good information or optimistic stories. So I want to explore those human proclivities more in a little bit. But first, let's talk about some data, because that's your wheelhouse. And maybe here we could start with your recent Substack post about the May report from the World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, which publishes an update of warming projections every year. And the main finding from that report was, quote, the chance of global near-surface temperature exceeding 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels for at least one year between 2023 and 2027 is more likely than not at 66%, end quote. And as you pointed out in your post, a lot of mainstream publications wrote up that report in terms that would give the casual reader the impression that we're about to pass the 1.5 degrees C target established in the Paris Agreement. For example, one headline read, World likely to breach 1.5 degrees C climate threshold by 2027, scientists warn. But as you went on to explain in your post, that's not at all what the WMO report said, is it? No, it's not. And I actually didn't really see a good headline in any of the media on this. They were all pretty much reporting it the same, which was basically that we were going to break the 1.5 target or threshold. Yep. And of course, that is ahead of what most people would have expected. And what scientists said, we were probably going to pass it by. So there was a lot of panic about it. Yeah. But of course, that's not what the WMO said. What they were saying is that by 2027, they said it's more likely than not, so there's around a two-thirds chance that we'll see a temporary rise above 1.5 degrees. Maybe one year, maybe two years. But what they were saying is we'll probably see a temporary rise above 1.5 degrees and then it will fall again. Now, the reason for this is that we are in the very early stages of an El Nino event, which tends to bring warmer conditions. So we'd expect that we would see a small spike in temperatures before it came back down again. 
what they weren't saying, and they were quite explicit about this in the report, is that this was not a permanent rise above 1.5 degrees. Now, when we think about what the 1.5 degree target means, the 1.5 degree target is not rising above 1.5 degrees for one or two years. It's a climate target. Rising above 1.5 degrees for one year is weather. And we would, if a climate skeptic was to say, global warming is not happening because temperatures have fallen in one year, we would say you're reporting weather, you're not reporting climate. And here it's the same. When we rise above it for one year, we can't say that this is a climate event. What we would have to see was a permanent rise above 1.5 for 20, 30 years is the kind of official, this is what climate is. I would say probably if you're looking at a rolling average of five years or so, that that's probably sufficient to say that you've passed it. But one year is not. Because there is a fair amount of volatility from year to year. And as you say, the El Nino effect that we're about to start experiencing here this year is also a pronounced influence on that variability as compared with the La Nina cooling effects that we've just been in for the past several years. Yeah, there's a lot of variability from year to year, but also from month to month. So if our climate target was to not rise even temporarily above 1.5 degrees, two months after we signed the Paris Agreement, we went over 1.5 degrees. So if you look at data for February in 2016, just after we'd signed the Paris Agreement, we went above 1.5 degrees relative to the pre-industrial baseline for that month. So if that's your definition of breaking the Paris Agreement, then we broke it many, many, many times. Right. But that's not what it is. It's a climate. It's not a temporary rise. Also, I mean, just the very language of calling it a threshold is a little bit confusing, I think, or maybe misleading because it's not like once you cross over this quote-unquote threshold, you're in an irreversible new state or something like that. That's not how the Paris Agreement arrived at the 1.5 degree target, is it? No, it's not. And I think that's like a clear problem in communication because I think a lot of people have that understanding that it's basically like falling off a cliff. Like once you hit 1.5 degrees, it's basically over. Right. And I think that's the problem then with reporting it in this way, because people that had that in mind, when they see that headline, they're like, it's over. I think there's a number of reasons. I think people might think I'm being pedantic when I point this stuff out, but it's important. One, it's important for people's perceptions of climate and where we're heading and taking action. But it's also important, like even from the point of view of looking at like the ammunition of deniers, so scientists have projected what impacts might look like between 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, but they've based that on there being a sustained amount of warming at that level over a given period of time. That's not what will happen if we go over that for one year. But what happens if you report that as breaking 1.5 degrees is that deniers then say, oh, climate scientists said this is what would happen once we went past 1.5. It's not happened, therefore they're lying or they don't know what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> All right, well, since you've spent some real time studying climate models, how do you characterize the warming trajectory that we're on? We've done many episodes on the different ways of looking at warming scenarios, including the ones used in the IPCC's framework, the current policies and pledges and targets set by various countries, the Paris Agreement targets, etc. We also did a whole series of shows about why the most extreme warming scenario in the IPCC framework, RCP 8.5, is highly unlikely and is not, as has often 
often been described a quote-unquote business-as-usual scenario. So our listeners are quite familiar, I think, at this point with a wide range of warming scenarios, but I think we'd be interested in hearing how you look at this. What trajectory do you think we're on now? How much do you think we can realistically bend that curve downward? And what are the major uncertainties in your view? Yes, I know that you've discussed this a lot in the past. I think you had Justin Ritchie on, who's not a relation of mine, on the RCP (laughs) 8.5. So my perspective on this is at the lower end, we're not going to stay below 1.5 degrees. I think for me, that's just very much out of the question. I just don't see it happening. The only way I see it happening is if we bring temperatures back below 1.5 degrees C by the end of the century. So overshooting and then reducing temperatures by carbon removal. I think they are just the obvious uncertainty is whether we can scale them and make them cheap. And on that, I'm like relatively skeptical that we can scale them to that level. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the pledges on the table, my perspective is that we're looking at coming in maybe just above two degrees. So my guess would be around 2.2 degrees at this point. Okay. I think it is possible to bend that curve down towards two degrees and possibly even sneak below it. But it would require all countries really hitting their pledges. So their policies are not currently in line with their pledges. So they need to bring that in line. I think what's also important there is it's not just where countries end up 50 years from now, it's also the pathway they take to get there because it's cumulative emissions that matter for warming. So I think one uncertainty there is how the short-term targets match up with long-term targets. And I think a lot of countries are falling short on short-term targets. And that actually does matter even if they hit their long-term targets. So I think it's how these targets progress over time and how they're staged over time, I think, will matter a lot. But I think like, it's important to point out that my perspective on this now is like way different from what it was even five years ago. If you'd asked me five years ago whether two degrees was possible, I would have said like absolutely not. Hmm. And I think now we're currently going just above that, but I actually think it is possible that we could get there if we like, really go for it. And what changed your mind on that? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one, $1 billion a day. That's how much the IEA said that solar investments were expected to attract globally this year in their World Energy Investment 2023 report released in May. In fact, for the first time, more money will be invested into solar than oil production this year. In total, more than $1.7 trillion is expected to be invested this year into clean energy technologies such as EVs, renewables, and storage. And 90% of the investment into electricity generation this year will go to clean energy sources. In addition to the mere fact that solar and wind are already the cheapest sources of electricity in most of the world, the IEA says, the investment is being driven by the fact that they keep getting cheaper still while offering lasting solutions to the problems of energy security and climate change. At the same time, governments around the world are massively increasing incentives for the full range of energy transition solutions. Last year, EV sales were up 55% from 2021 and 400% from 2019. Investments in battery storage doubled and are expected to double again this year. Conversely, the agency noted that investments in fossil fuels are still much too high, at roughly double the rate called for in its net zero emissions by 2050 scenario. In fact, it calculated that the $1.5 trillion that oil and gas companies return to shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks from 2020 to 2022 could have fully covered the investment needed for all clean fuels in the agency's 1.5C net zero emissions scenario between 2023 and 2030. Currently, oil and gas companies are directing just 4% of their spending toward clean energy. Coal-fired power generation capacity in China continued to grow, but as we have pointed out in numerous previous episodes, those plants may only operate sporadically at times of peak demand, with negligible effects on China's CO2 output. See the links in the show notes for many more highlights and a link to the IEA report. Item 2. While the use of China's new coal capacity may be uncertain, what is certain is that solar is booming ever faster in China, which is fairly amazing considering that it has been installing more solar than any other country by far. According to BNEF, the country installed almost three times as much solar capacity between January and... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.